Good morning, church. Oh, I think we can do a little better than that today. Good morning, church. Awesome, awesome. Hey, exciting day, exciting Sunday. I'm pumped to be with you guys. It is such a privilege to be able to share God's word with you. Uh, any opportunity, and then especially on a Sunday like this, we're going to celebrate our, our students going through confirmation. And, um, and yeah, it's just such it's just a joy. Um, if you're joining with, with us online, we're glad that you're here as well. Um, today's actually my dad's birthday. So if you're watching, Dad, happy birthday. Uh, if you're watching online and it's not your birthday, well, happy birthday anyway. Um, but, but no, we're excited here um, because of confirmation, this celebration. Um, but we're excited for God's word. And so we've been in this series called Jesus is Greater. And it's been such an interesting uh, series to be able to look back at things that happened throughout the Old Testament that maybe at the time when they were happening, they, people didn't even realize that these were cursors or markers of things that were to come. And these were things of, that Jesus was gonna come that because we see the whole picture, we had to see that Jesus is the greater version of some of those things. And so we've looked at some stories in the Old Testament. I'm glad today we're not looking at the story of Noah, okay? Because it sounds like that's going on outside. Um, but we looked at some Old Testament stories where we saw, man, there was things that happened in the Old Testament. There was details, there was characters, there was people, there was things that happened in the Old Testament that seemed just like a normal part of the Bible. But when you read through it in light of the New Testament, in light of Jesus, we understand that they were setting up what Jesus was going to be doing. And so when we looked at, uh, we looked at Noah, we said that, that he was going to come provide a greater rescue. And today we're looking at the story of Esther. And so if you're not familiar with the story of Esther, I'm going to be honest with you, we're just going to scratch the surface. Uh, we've got a lot of things planned in this message. Um, but I would encourage you guys to go home this week. It's 10 chapters, but it's a narrative. Go back and read through it, get a cup of coffee, spend some time in the text. It is an incredible story, and it's written in a very particular way. It's written in this chiastic structure where it kind of forms like an X. It's a famous, fancy Greek word. Um, but it, it almost forms like an X where everything that happens in the beginning of the story and at the end of the story are almost paralleled, like almost to the verse, all the way down to the middle, central part and central theme of the story. And it's written br brilliantly. It's written in a very clever way. Um, and today I want to talk to you about it a little bit. But for our purposes, we're going to focus on a specific aspect of it. So in order to get to that, I figured since we're talking about kings and queens, I would uh, resort to some help, okay? Because there's different characters in this story. I don't want us to get confused. I don't want us to get lost. And, well, this may actually not help us, but we're going to give it a try anyway. Um, this is our first piece of the giant chess set. Um, this is actually my portable set. This is the one I take. Oh, I'm just kidding. Um, and everyone knows what piece this is? Okay, this is the king. And so our first character in the story, the first person that we're going to look for and look to is King, you ready for his name? Xerxes. All right, try saying that 10 times fast. King Xerxes, King Xerxes, King Xerxes. All right, now King Xerxes in Esther, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I'll, I'll call out some versions, but we'll go rapid um, really quickly today. But King Xerxes, it starts out by saying, by describing him and, and saying what a powerful king that he was and how big his kingdom was. And it says this in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, these events, the ones that we're talking about, happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India all the way to Ethiopia. And at that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the nobles and all the officials. He invited all of the military officers, this is all like the, the rich, the fancy, the, the dignitaries. And he invites all of them to, to come uh, and to the, to the princes and the people of wealth. And a celebration lasted, are you ready for this? 180 days. All right, six months. Duke could throw a party. It said a tremendous display of, of opulent wealth in the empire was prompt of splendor and all of his majesty. He had done this crazy, 
huge banquet to show off the splendor of his kingdom, to show off the splendor of himself, and, and really just to kind of get everyone to look at him and worship him. He was worshiped as a god because he was so powerful. His kingdom was so big, it was so great, he wanted everyone to notice him. So he throws this huge banquet, this huge party, and in verse 5 it says this, when it was all over, the king gave another banquet. And this one was for all the people, from the greatest to the least, all the people in the courts. This banquet was only seven days, okay? And so this first banquet is for every rich person, every noble person, every military figure. All like the, the VIPs come out for six months and they just party. And then, he, I guess he like felt bad or something. He had a second party uh, just for all the people in his courts, all the regular common folk. And that one was seven days long. Now, during this party, he gives some cues and some interesting uh, pieces of information about the party. It says the courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains, blue hanging, and some blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons. The color purple was a hard color to achieve back then, so it was a color of royalty, a color of wealth. There were silver rings embedded into the marble pillars, gold and silver uh, couches stood on mosaic pavements, um, all these different kinds of stones and costly marble. It says drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs. That sounds like a, like a cool cup. Uh, there was an abundance of royal wine, which is probably different than regular wine, uh, reflecting the king's generosity. And by edict or by command of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking for the king had instructed in his palace officials that, that they should serve every man as much as he wanted. Dude was throwing this crazy party, okay? And he wants to celebrate, he wants to have a good time, but he wants everyone to see him, his splendor, his kingdom, his greatness, and how incredible he is. Now, in the middle of this, it says that he had a queen, and the queen's name was Vashti. Everyone say Vashti. Queen Vashti. It says that Queen Vashti was throwing a party at the same time for all of the women of the court. So while the men are getting together, they're having a party, they're having a good time. All the women are on the other side having a party. She's hosting this one. And it says, as you continue to read this story, that he starts to get um, a, little bit, a little bit high on the wine, okay? It says he starts to get a little drunk. Um, as he's drinking the wine, as he's celebrating, he's with all of his buddies. He decides, you know what I'm gonna do? Is I'm gonna call Queen Vashti and invite her over so that everyone can see how beautiful she is. And he's trying to show off his wife. He's trying to show off how beautiful she is. Show off, not in a good way, not in like a, hey, I'll put on my coverage, I married this incredible wife, but he wants everyone to be jealous of him. And so he summons for his wife and she is not interested. She doesn't want anything of it. And she goes, no, I'm, I'm not coming. I'm not gonna be a part of that. And it actually says that he, with the guys that are around him who are all also drinking wine, he says, well, she doesn't wanna come. What should I do? And they said, you should ban her from your presence and banner from your kingdom. Removed the piece off the board. And so now he's in a predicament because he needs to find a new queen. Now, what does the richest guy in the world, the richest guy in the empire, the, the, the great king do to find himself a new queen? Well, he holds a type of beauty pageant. And in his beauty pageant, there's a teen girl named Esther who rises to the scene. Now, it's interesting to me that Esther is a teenager. Uh, it says it here in the scriptures. It says that she was attractive. It says she was beautiful. It says that she receives favor, um, not just by the king, but by the people that she's dealing with. But Esther is a teen, and it's interesting to me because as students, as we get to deal with them, there's one thing that I know that all students, uh, myself included, as I was growing up in your guys' age, that we don't want to do, and that is we don't want to stand out. 
We don't want to be singled out. We don't want to stand out. Like, sure, we want to achieve things and accomplish things, but we don't want to be put on the spot. And there's a reason we're all wearing green today, okay? We didn't want to come in different outfits and, and wearing different things. Last night, actually, and this happened sometimes. It happened last, last night, or, or sorry, Friday night at our, at our ceremony. It's not a problem. It's not a big deal. But the rumor had got out that if we came to confirmation, and this happened amongst the girls because, you know, the guys, they don't really care what they're wearing. Um, but it's a rumor spread amongst the girls that they had to wear a white dress for the ceremony. And so everyone's like, we wear a white dress? Do you have to wear a white dress? Do they say wear a white dress? Do they check the email? Like, no, it doesn't say. Well, guess what? Probably half of the people showed up with a white dress. And that was great. And you guys looked lovely. And it was awesome. But it's funny because we have this desire to not stick out. We have this desire to not be any different. We don't want to make any waves. We just want to go with the flow. And so here you have this teen who's starting to stand out, who's starting to be different. But all she desires is to be just normal like everybody else. You know, I, I experienced something like this with, with my brother. Um, I have an older sister, um, and she was always a little different because she was the sister. She was the girl of the group. And I have a, a, a youngest brother who there's a pretty decent gap between us. But the brother who's two years younger than me, he and I would always kind of end up kind of competing in things. Not like, like competitively, but just by being compared. And so you would see me, you would see him, and you would think back and forth. And one of the things that I remember, and, and this was, uh, if I could be honest with you guys, if I can have a, a vulnerable moment with you guys this morning, is that okay? Can I, can I open up to you guys? There was an issue, there was a, something in my life and my relationship with my brother where he was better at this than me and I was just not good in this one specific area and it was creating a problem between us. Now, you're gonna laugh when you hear this, but just please don't laugh too hard because this is my feelings, okay? I'm sensitive about this. And when I was in kindergarten and elementary school, I had a problem with, with wetting the bed, okay? Okay, I'm just gonna say it, all right? Sunday morning I said it, there we go. And my brother didn't, but he was younger than me. And so I, I, I couldn't control it. I was a heavy sleeper. And I tried to, I mean, I knew like, don't stop drinking after 6 p.m. Go to the bathroom before you go to sleep. And somehow still I would wake up the next morning or sometimes at night and I would have wet the bed. And I hated this because now I had to go and tell my mom. I just remember like, you know, I'm all like timid, I'm like shy. And my mom was a light sleeper. So I, I should have been smart. I should have just like knocked on the door or, you know, just like, like tripped and like knocked over the lamp or something. Like she would have woken up. But I was just like, I creep over to her door, and I would get there, and I had to like work up the courage. And so finally, I would decide to just do this. I would just stare at her. <laughs> and my mom, who was laying there sleeping like a mummy, she'd be like, <laughs> and she's like, what? And she could just feel my presence staring at her. And so she would wake up and be like, mommy, mommy, I went to bed. And she was all mad and angry at me and, and had to help me take care of this. But I hated to stick out. I hated, I was timid to go to her. I didn't want to stick out. I didn't want to be different. And, and we see that in this story because Esther is now summoned into this, this palace. She's getting this, this special treatment. And there's another character that we, we see in this story. And that is her cousin, Mordecai. Now, Mordecai is uh, a little bit older than her. He actually says that in scripture, he took over for her. He took care of her because her parents died. Uh, I picked the bishop because the bishop is like the spiritual overseer um, in, in religious terms. And so he kind of was, he would check in with her and he ended up working for the king and he would check in with the king. And, and he had this role where he kind of go back and forth and check in with things. And so he was helping Esther. And he's like, Esther, don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. Um, we're kind of this remnant of, of the, the, the Israelites that are here um, after they've gone back from captivity. But we can't tell everyone. And so he has a special relationship with her. And then we have this last character um, uh, named Haman. Uh, now I picked uh, the horse, the knight for Haman. Uh, because Haman actually um, gets so jealous, I mean, he gets exalted, becomes uh, one, of, one of his chief rulers for the king. And, and one day Haman is kind of doing his thing and everyone bows to Haman because he's, he's um, uh, just he's well put together, he's powerful, he, he has all the status and so all the guys bow to him, but Mordecai won't bow to him. 
and he can't stand Mordecai. And so his actually desire is to put Mordecai to death, but, but, but see, Mordecai had saved the king's life one time. And so the king remembers this, and this is such a beautiful, this is why the story is beautiful. The, the, the king goes to, to Haman one day, he goes, hey, what would you do if someone, like if you heard of someone in the kingdom who had taken great care or, or, or saved your life or done something? Now he thinks he's talking about himself. He goes, I would probably put him on a horse with some nice clothes and parade him all around town to tell him all the good that he's done. And the king goes, I love it. Go find Mordecai, because Mordecai saved my life, and I want you to take him all around town on a horse and tell everyone how great he is and what he's done and all the incredible things. And eventually, um, well, he actually dies too. Um, and so we find ourselves in this story. Now, before he died, though, Haman had set up with the king. He would manage to figure out, because of his hatred for Mordecai, because Mordecai was Jewish, he had, he had set up this whole thing with the king where they had decided, and they, they, they threw some, rolled some dice and decided that there was going to be a time in, in one year's time where they were going to kill all the Jewish people. Now, if you know anything about scripture, you know anything about the Bible, it, it said the Jewish lineage was super important. And from this lineage, we, we, we receive uh, our Savior, Jesus. And the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, the Jewish race was where we get Jesus from. And, and so we realized that it was important to preserve that. And Mordecai realizes that, and he goes and he communicates that with Esther. He says, Esther, you need to meet with the king. You need to talk to him. You need to go on our behalf, and you need to, you need to help us out. Now, again, she's a teenager. Uh, she, she's been pronounced as queen, but it, things were a little different back then. It wasn't like you, like, you know, hopped on a FaceTime call with the king. You, you had to go to him and talk to him and, and be summoned by him. And be, he had to reach out his royal scepter to allow you to speak. And it's so interesting because in, in chapter 4, as uh, Mordecai is speaking with Esther, and he's preparing her, and he's telling her, he says this to her. He says, don't you, don't you think for a moment that because you're in this palace that you'll escape if all the Jews are killed? If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. I'm certain that God will take care of us, basically. He goes, but you and your relatives will die. And he says this line, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. That's a well-known scripture that has to do with Esther. He goes, Esther, maybe, just maybe, the reason you're positioned where you are is just so you could have that conversation with the king at such a time as this. And so Esther decides to risk everything. She decides to go in front of the king. She meets him in his court. He extends the royal scepter to her. He says, what can I do for you? Now she's smart. She's learned a thing or two. And she says, let me make a banquet for you. She knows his love language, banquets and parties. And so she has a banquet for him. And, and at the banquet, he goes, okay, um, you know, you're my queen. What can I give you? What can I do for you? And she says, let me give you another banquet tomorrow. He's like, oh, shit. Another banquet on banquet, like banquet square, like let's do this. And, and, and so she proposes another banquet. And at the second banquet, that's when she comes and reveals the whole plan. Um, and then eventually he decides to save the Jewish people. It's an incredible story. Now it's interesting too because it's the one book of the Bible that does not mention God in the whole story. But God is so at work. His work is so evident through the pages of this, of this story, through the conversations, through the, the interactions, through Esther's sacrificial uh, uh, desire to go in front of the king for the people of Israel. And when you read through it, if you read it carefully enough and you slow down enough and put yourself in the story, you actually will start to see that the picture of God is all over it, even though he is never mentioned in this book. Now, some people have said this, that if you were to read the story or read about Xerxes and this kingdom, you could almost say that Jesus is a greater king, that Jesus has a greater kingdom, that Jesus is a greater savior. But what I wanna focus on for us today and this morning 
as we are in our closing time, is that when we look at Esther, we realize that she was a good queen and she was even a good mediator. She did a good job at, at coming and mediating on behalf of the people of Israel, on behalf of the Jewish people to the king. But Jesus is an even greater mediator. Jesus is an even greater mediator for you and for me in our everyday lives. Jesus is greater mediator than even Esther was. You see, a mediator is someone who goes between two parties that are in conflict to come to some sort of agreement. There's party number one, party number two, and there's some sort of, not party is like, like his parties, but like uh, 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 an outrage or upset party. He comes between two grieving parties and he creates peace. He creates mediation and creates a positive outcome. There's this movie in the late 90s, The Negotiator, uh, with Samuel L. Jackson. I'll never forget it because, uh, well, it's not a movie I recommend because it has a lot of language in it. Uh, but there's this one scene where he gets, uh, he needs a call on a negotiator and they go to this hostage negotiator who is negotiating between his wife and his daughter. And his daughter has offended the mom and she's locked herself in the bathroom and he's trying to like coerce her to come out and, and get to the party on time. But he's doing the job of a mediator, of negotiating on behalf of trying to reconcile the two parties. I had an experience of this when I was in high school. Our student ministry, and you guys know this, I grew up in Italy, and so our student ministry was in Italy, it was in Italian, and we had this group that came one time called Evangelism Explosion. And their job was to teach us how to share the gospel with other people in Italy. And they had this, these great stories and resources, and they had this whole like analogy that they follow the hand, uh, and, and so you could remember how to share, what verses to share. And all day we spent with them training and learning how to share the, the message of Jesus with other people. And I was the interpreter, I was the translator. And so this guy came up and he said, welcome, I'm from America, I'm with Evangelism Explosion. And I you know, said it in Italian. And then he would say, here's how we're gonna do. And I would say it in Italian. We'd go back and forth, back and forth. And all day we had practiced and trained and learned. And he said, tonight we're going to the town square. We're gonna find people who need to hear the gospel and we're gonna share it with them. Are you ready? And everyone was like, sure. And so we got in our, our van, we went downtown, we went to the town square, and we started to share the gospel. Now, evangelism, evangelism explosion, the, the way they share the gospel is that they start with this one question. And the question is, if you were to die tonight and Jesus were to say, why should I let you into my heaven, how would you answer? Well, there was a problem with this question. And that is that Italian people, if you know anything about Italians, are very, 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 very superstitious. And to talk about death... It makes them very uncomfortable. And so here we were, all these teenage kids in the town square, say, hey, if you were to die tonight, they're like, whoa, why are you talking about death? Wait, why are you bringing that up? Why are you got to talk about that topic? And they did not want to hear it. They did not want to talk about it. And almost like a part to the, all the different groups that went out as we went to go share the gospel. Hey, if you were to die tonight, whoa, whoa, why are you talking about that, man? And so we came back that night for debrief and we sat around, I think they bought us all ice cream and we sat around a circle and this American guy was, had this big smile, big grin on his face. And he said, how did it go? How'd it go? Let's hear some stories. And everyone was really quiet, very timid. And finally, this one girl in the youth group stood up and she was one of the pastor's daughters. And she was, let's just say she was a little more vocal than the rest of the group. And she stood up and she goes, this thing doesn't work. This way to share the gospel is awful. I'm not sure why you guys came here. I'm not sure why you guys were trying to talk about death. People don't want to talk about this. People don't want to hear it. Well, I had to change the whole method. Your method doesn't work. Why, what have we been doing all day? And the guy's like tracking with her, smiling, laughing, nodding. And then he finally, she stopped and he looked at me. He goes, what'd she say? I said, well, <laughs> you know, perhaps, maybe this method approach this time wasn't the greatest. <laughs> you know, I had to mediate. I had to try to smooth things over. I had to try to make things okay between the two parties. And, and they soon realized that their approach just wasn't working for us. 
But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there's this verse that says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So there's one mediator between us and God. Now, if I say that to you, and based on what we're saying, that should ask the question, well, what, why is there a mediator between us and God? What needs mediating? What needs fixing? Our confirmation students, we, we study this at the very beginning of our retreat. We go away, we say God creates everything. God creates everything beautifully, marvelously in his image. And then we say, but there's a problem. Everything starts and then there's sin. Sin enters the world. And when sin enters the world, it creates separation between us and God. And we said back in the retreat from Romans chapter 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we said, you don't have to be a Greek scholar. The word all there means all, everyone. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And Romans 6.23 says that the payment or the, 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 the retribution, the salary for sin is death. Eternal death, the separation from God in a real place called hell. And so God, though, if we close the book, that'd be bad news. But God decided to enact his salvation, to send his son Jesus then to mediate, to die on the cross for us. Now, in the Old Testament practices, in the Old Testament law, if you wanted to go before God, if you need to ask for forgiveness, there's only certain people who could do that, and that was the high priest. Now, there's this tent of meeting that Moses had created, and when he went there, when the cloud was there, you knew God's presence was there, and eventually they had the tabernacle. And the tabernacle had different sections to it, and one section of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, reserved just for the high priest to be able to go in there. And the high priest would go in there with an animal, with a sacrifice, with an offering, and they had to go through this whole cleansing ritual because a, 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 a glorious God full of righteousness and love and kindness couldn't be in the presence of sin and disobedience. And so before the high priest went in, they had to go through these rituals. There was a whole ceremonial law that they had to follow and, and rituals that they had to do to cleanse themselves. And if they went in at the wrong time or the wrong way, the wrong manner, they actually could be struck dead. And so before the high priest went in, he would put bells and a rope around his waist so that if they dropped and died, the people knew and could actually drag the body back out. And so to go before God and before his presence was a big deal. And not only that, they would finally go into his presence, they'd bring a sacrifice, they'd bring an offering, and a year later they'd have to do it again because it wasn't enough to appease God. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says that Jesus then was made to become merciful and faithful, the high priest in the service to God, to make, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews says that Jesus then became that high priest for us. And then when he died on the cross, because he was a man, he fulfilled the payment of the sin that we deserved. And because he conquered death by dying and coming back to life and ascending to the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, because he died and rose again, then he conquered death. And that payment was null and void. It doesn't have to happen over and over and over again. And in the story of his crucifixion in Matthew 27, 51, it says that the, the curtain of the temple the veil was torn from the top to bottom. The inner place, the Holy of Holies, that, 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 that sacred place, was the, the curtain was ripped, providing then access in a symbolic, but also in a very physical place between us and God. There's this verse in, in Hebrews 14. I'll end with this, where it explains that Jesus understood what it was like to be human. It says, because we have this high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. And we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace 
to help in time of need. With Jesus' mediation, things change. There's now access to the throne of the Father. You can go to him freely. We can go to God freely because of Jesus. We don't need the high priest. We don't need the sacrifice. We don't need the, the offerings. We don't need to be worried and trembling. It's not like when I would go to my mom and like all timid and scared. No, I could like kick down the door. Mama, I went to bed. Like, like that's how we can access God. We can go to him with confidence and boldness, knowing that he listens to us and he hears us and he loves us and cares for us. Esther was put in a place for such a time as this to mediate on behalf of the people. Jesus came along for such a time to mediate on behalf of us and God. And I wonder the time and place that we find ourselves in. For such a time as this, confirmation students, that God has placed us where we are, who are we to mediate for? How are we to access the Father? Who can we bring with us to see the Father? Understanding that we can access his throne with freedom, with boldness, because he has died on the cross for us. Would you just close your eyes and bow your heads? I wanna end things this morning with some prayer. And I want you to think, thank God of the opportunity that you have to go to the throne of grace with boldness and confidence because of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your salvation, sending your son to die for us, to pay the payment for us, to fulfill the payment for us, to provide for us eternal life once and for all. Father, may we be mediators between people who need to come to you, our friends who need a relationship with you, and everyone, Father God, who is searching for you. Set us up, Father, for such a time as this that we may reach out be a blessing to those around us. Thank you, Father God, for understanding our journey, understanding our lives, and giving us freedom and everlasting life. Jesus, we love you. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, this morning, as we start to wrap things up, as we continue to celebrate these students, uh, I know we couldn't bring all of you guys through the whole process, and so we decided to put together a little video to show you guys a little bit of what they experienced and a little bit of what you missed, um, a little bit of what to look forward to if you're moving to eighth grade what you can look forward to if you join and become a mentor with us. Let's check out this video.